Hey nerds, do you like comics? Then you should definitely check out what we're going to call our cousin podcast, Girls With Issues. It includes Billy Bones and Vicky O, my two all-time favorite people in New York State. Listen to them geek out about comics on a weekly basis. You can go find them, Girls With Issues. You can follow them on Twitter. You can check them out on iTunes and Facebook. And definitely give them a good old shout-out because we love them and we think you will love them. Thanks so much. Check out Girls With Issues. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Test one, two, three. Check, check, check one, two. Hey, Sarah. Yes? I was doing a little research the other day as I... uh often do in matters of ancient Egypt. Okay. And uh, I came across a really interesting factoid. Lay it on me. It turns out the very first open-air music festival was recorded in the New Kingdom in ancient Egypt. What? Yeah. Who knew? Okay. They had uh, people from around the country brought in to sing and perform music, and it had some pretty incredible contributions. Okay, do tell. Uh, well, they had some acts that were, you know, big for the time. Obviously, they 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 kind of died out now, but uh, well, I would hope so. Oh yeah, yeah. the Hau was one of them. The Hau. The Hau, yeah. All right. Uh, Shana Ra, oh, very popular Shana. for the time. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was, of course, the uh, Fertile Nile revival. Oh man, took a little negotiating, but they Fertile got Fertile Nile revival. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, the uh, the biggest act of them all, the one that took the most coaxing in to get in, was uh, the Grateful Mummies. Eric, that was bullshit. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I'm Sarah Ashley. Huzzah! I'm back to visit again. Indeed you are. Reunited and it feels so good. I'm just kidding. It doesn't feel good? I mean, it feels alright. Alright, yeah. It's not the best. I mean, it's kind of cozy, but... It's familiar. I feel like it could feel... Better. Uh, let's just stop this now. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> listeners, of course, you are hearing the amazing Sarah Ashley, who we're happy to have on the show. Brian is uh, off doing what Brian does, and that is, of course, the amazing talent of musical theater. Yes. Uh, as you listeners have heard over the past several episodes, we've referenced it many times. Brian is doing Les Mis. He's at a dress rehearsal right now, and he is there being extremely French, extremely revolutionary, and extremely sideburny. He oh, just yeah. got some new sideburns. He's got the in. burns. Yeah, on Nerds on Film, we, we basically say that he's Les Miserating <laughs> when he's uh, at rehearsal. So that's what he's doing now. Exactly. Uh, and so we decided that we would bring in the fantastic Sarah Ashley to talk about a topic that is of particular interest to her. Oh, yeah. Uh, that I, through doing some research, which I had very little back history going into this, I really didn't know a whole lot, uh, I have just found to be fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. But before we get to all that, of course, we have to do a little listener feedback. This week in Listener Feedback... All right, our first piece of listener feedback is in reference to my unborn child. (laughs) Okay, then. Which is always good. Uh, I mentioned on the podcast, of course, previously that Martha and I are expecting our third child. Which is super exciting. It is. And I promise when that baby's born, I will not drop it. Please. (laughs) If at all possible. I know. I'm not not so good with with little ones, but uh, I promise I won't. uh, Yeah, okay. You will learn with Nerdonomy's newest spawn. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) But we were looking for names uh, for boy, and we've actually settled on one, but 
I did ask before for suggestions, and we've received one, which is pretty neat, although I couldn't get Martha to quite agree to it. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the title of the email says, Name of a Son. And it continues, Algernon. Oh. Yeah. Algernon or Algernon? Uh, probably Algernon. A-L-G-E-R-N-O-N. Yeah, it's Algernon, like Algernon. flowers for Algernon. Oh, see, this is why we have an English expert on. Uh, Algernon, Norman origin or nor yeah Norman origins, uncommon and a great character. Algy uh, Moncrief in the importance of being earnest. Oh yeah, that's right. <gasps> Ooh, Oscar Wilde. Oh, I love that. This speaks specially to oh, you. Oh my goodness, I love it, love it, love it. Uh, goes on to say, thanks for the podcast. You guys sound great on two x speed, so double the speed, uh, while helping uh, my work days speed by. They don't sound like chipmunks? I, we probably do, but <laughs> that's okay. That's fine. We're still charming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, su- I'm totally surprised that you uh, turned down my suggestion for your unborn child's name. Yeah, I'm not so surprised. I had to turn down uh, Brian's, too. Uh, Conan the Brickmont. Just no, no, that wasn't good. But I suggested Ignatius Danger Brickmont. Danger is a cool middle name. Yeah. But... Um, well, as is tradition in my family, we all have four middle names. So what's really fascinating is that the gentleman who's writing this, who's, mm-hmm. of course, his name is uh, Algernon. Algernon. Algernon, excuse me. Algernon. Uh, has four middle names as well. Oh. I don't want to say his entire name, though, okay. on air, because okay. that's just inappropriate. Then but we won't have to. I will say mine, because mm-hmm. I have no problem saying it. My entire name is Eric Joseph Hugh Clement Emile Brickmont. No kidding. That's or no joke, ball. as he says at the end of his. <laughs> so I'm right there with you, man. I've got the same thing going on. He's from uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And Yay! Says, oh, I love Canadians. Oh, Canadians are awesome. They're so nice. They are. That's not just a myth. They are actually nice. Yeah, That's been I tested. I have family in Canada. Mm-hmm. Then they're nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, P.S. Loved the Mexican history cast. I will tell Martha. That's cool. All right. Our next piece comes from Sadie. Sadie is actually a friend of a very dear and very close friend to mine. Uh, Tabeka, who I absolutely love, uh, don't see nearly as often as I wish I did, would love to have on the podcast sometime, and both her and Tabeka work with special needs children. And as you know, I have a daughter who is special needs, she's autistic, and uh, those little kiddos have a very special place in my heart, especially my little kiddo. And so I have the utmost respect for both Tabeka and Sadie, who just do some amazing work. She just wanted to let us know her thoughts on the education system uh, in California and in general. And this email, it could be an essay. Yeah. <laughs> and she acknowledges it. She's like, totally like, you do not need to read any or all of this on air because it's just super long. But it is wonderful. And I, I really, I want to thank you, Sadie, for being so passionate. That is what we need. That's what supports these really special little sweethearts uh, that are out there, like my little sweetheart. And I thank you. That's awesome. Yep. Well, let's see. Moving on. This one comes from Albert, and uh, Albert, awesome name by the way, we just have great names uh, for feedback this week, says, my name is Albert, Uh, his middle name is Napoleon by the way. What? Yeah. Awesome. That is cool. Uh, And he's an artist from Ireland. Oh, okay. Uh, He wanted to tell us how much he loves the podcast and he looks forward to it every week. He's recommended it to a few friends and they find it both funny and informative. Cool. Uh, If you're not listening to Nerds on Film, check that one out too. Yeah, yeah, why not? (laughs) Little shameless plug. Yeah, let's let's just plug it. Uh, He says that because we have such a deep wealth of knowledge, he was wondering if we could give him some advice on something. Ooh, I love advice. Yeah, and this is awesome because it is one of the most nerdy things that you can possibly do. Okay. Uh, He makes a lot of miniature dioramas. 
And it's mostly modern urban scenes, he says. But he liked some suggestions on historical ones. Um, maybe some that aren't too gruesome, because he keeps thinking of you know specific battles and things like that, right? Right. So I just, oh, this is so cool. Because I right. make models. Where's my, where, where is it? Oh, there it is. Okay, well, obviously, listeners, you can't see what I'm pointing to. However, there is a uh, small-scale recreation, 1 16th scale, of the uh, lunar lander from the very first lunar landing. And I made it, and I like it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're beaming. (laughs) Yeah, I'm super nerdy. That's okay. But uh, We're all accepting here. For Egypt, oh, man, you could do some really cool stuff because... The Egyptians were very meticulous when they planned out tombs in particular. They actually laid out blueprints, the very first blueprints in the world. And they uh, had them set up with a system of measurement called cubits. And so you can actually be very precise in your recreation of certain tombs. And there's been tons and tons of work that's been done throughout the years from people who have surveyed the sites. Uh, There's lithographs going back to the 19th century, uh, straight up to modern... Uh, photographic expeditions that have been done that are highly detailed. Uh, ThebanMappingProject.com, led by Dr. Kent Weeks. He's been doing this since the 70s, since he was renting air balloons and using them to survey the sites of the Theban necropolis. Tons of information, all free on the interwebs, and you can find uh, a lot of those layouts of different tombs. That would be cool. If you make one, I want a picture. Right. (laughs) I'm going to put it in the nerd cave. And I'm going to drool over it because it's equally nerdy to the other stuff that I do. So That's cool. I would actually suggest maybe doing um, like an outdoor um, performance from like ancient Greece um, of like the theater. Oh, that would be cool. That would be, that would be really cool. Like in the, in the amphitheater style and, and have, you know, your little people in masks and things like that. That was, that was And the chorus and that kind of thing and actually portray that would be really interesting. But other than that, uh, while you were talking, I'm trying to think of like other things. Everything else that I would want to see is, is totally gruesome. Like I would want to see Joan of Arc being burned at the stake or something like that. <laughs> That's just me personally and what fascinates me. <laughs> hey, uh, whatever floats and or burns your boat. Right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, our next piece comes from Sean Moriarty. Sean Mo, Big Sean Mo. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Big Sean Mo is uh, Brian's brother. He's also the phenomenal editor of both Nerds on History and Nerds on Film. Not an easy task. Uh, he writes this actually while editing the podcast. <laughs> he sent it to us on the website. Uh, I think was... it's because I opened up the floodgate saying that we could give you guys listener feedback from the other podcast. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, why not? Yep. Yeah. I've got more for you, by the way. I have no doubt. In fact, you will share in just a moment. I'll give you your moment. Uh, he says that he was wondering if we had any information on Chuck Barris slated for the future. Uh, and he was very interested in knowing more about him and his success with the gong show. Uh, and does the gong show count as a game show? Mm, I mean, gong show was more about performances, right? Yeah, technically speaking. Well, so that's where you have the weird kind of development that you see now when you're looking at things like performance shows like American Idol and the X Factor. But those are considered reality shows. What makes them reality shows and not a game show? I mean, a a game show is a reality show in a sense. Yeah. So I think they they overlap in some regard. And definitely the gong in particular kind of moves it into that category because it's a device. It gives it the game gimmick. Yeah, it does a little bit. But I don't know if I would call it 100% a game show. Uh, Sean has one other very important piece of listener feedback. Uh, He says... 
San Dimas High School Football Rules. San Dimas High School Football Rules! <laughs> uh, indeed, it does. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, for those of you who do not know. Nerds uh, on film. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly, uh, last but not least, we have Miss Sarah Ashley, who would like to give us... Yeah, this feedback. is just my little bit of stuff, because honestly, earlier today I was listening to um, what will now be last week's podcast, the one about game shows, and I wanted to mention that one... My sister-in-law actually won the Showcase Showdown on the Prices Right one one episode. So epic. Yeah, which is really cool. It's how she got her car. <laughs> she actually <laughs> sold the car that she won and bought her uh, the car that she has now. <laughs> That's totally what I would do. Yeah, and I think she got like, an, like a dinette set and things like that. I would sell that ridiculous <laughs> Lexus that gets like 15 miles to the gallon <laughs> right? and buy myself a Kia. Right, something, yeah. something practical. And um, a computer. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was you guys were talking about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and the murder that was tied to that. And the details were a little off. So it was not one of the Rangers. It sure as heck was not the Green Ranger. Oh, hey. <laughs> Which is what I think you said, Eric. I was just throwing it out I there. Know, I know. No, remember. no. It wasn't, definitely was not the Green Ranger who actually went to West Valley College where um, Brian and Dave went. Original Green Ranger, because there have been many incarnations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original Green Ranger. Anyway, the murder in question was um, a an actor who was an uncredited actor in one episode. He was like 14 years old at the time. He was not one of the main rangers. He was not even a major role. Um, I don't even know why they focused on that, which is so silly. And he didn't murder his parents. He was in cahoots with two other people to murder some people who were like trying to sell their yacht or something like that. Mm. So that's how that played out. But I just wanted to correct and clarify because I was like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Of all the original Power Rangers, I know none of them are murderers. I know what they're all doing now. <laughs> Not wow. that that's creepy. Yes. Sarah's Power Ranger watch can be followed online at Nerdonomy's <laughs> blog. <laughs> we have security cameras set up in all of their houses. <laughs> oh, and we've reached a new level of creepiness on the show. Hey. That's okay. I'm here. That's what I'm here for. No, that's not what you're here for. Okay, what am I here for? To talk about today's topic. And what would that be? Mud, drugs, and rock and roll. Woodstock, baby. Woodstock. Well, this is interesting. Nerds on History, we're all over the place, right? We focus on all sorts of different topics, and uh, this is this is a little more modern mm-hmm. in our history, right? Our listeners will have been alive during this event. Some uh, of them, yeah. Some of them will. And uh, we kind of did this a little bit last episode when we talked about game shows as being a big phenomenon, which, again, started in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. So kind of logical then. Why not jump on into the 60s and talk about things that were going on there? Mm-hmm. And particularly Woodstock, which is a key and kind of defining moment in that movement that really was the 60s, the cultural movement that was the 60s. Right. You know, and it's interesting, you know, you say there are listeners who are, you know, who were alive during the experience, you know? Yeah. And so I called. First thing I did was I called my parents. And um, Now, they were not at Woodstock, though. Neither of them were at Woodstock. They were too young. My mom was nine years old, and okay. my dad was a sophomore in high school. My dad was in a very conservative high school down in Southern California, and my mom was living in a suburb of San Francisco. San Francisco was hippie mecca. Oh, yeah. And... So I kind of got an interesting perspective on that. And one thing that really struck me when I talked to my mom about it, and she's like, 
I wouldn't call it symbolic and I wouldn't call it pivotal from my perspective, but I would call it symptomatic hmm. of the culture at the time, which I thought was a very interesting perspective, which I think we can dive into a little bit more. Your mother is highly intelligent. My mom is fantastic. I, uh, Mom, if you're listening, which I really doubt that you are, I love you. <laughs> my dad was actually really, really fun to talk to about this, too. My dad had uh, had some really cool stories about his experience with the Woodstock and the Woodstock um, and the free love kind of counterculture movement that they were talking about. So, If there are anyone on this planet who is, who is hippie-like, it would not be my father. <laughs> my father is the exact opposite. Well, my father is actually uh, square in shape. <laughs> He's an actual He's square. cube-like. He's, He's an cube-like. actual square. Well, neither of my parents, my, my mom's actually pretty square, but my mom, again, being that she grew up in and around San Francisco... It's definitely open up a little bit more culturally. Sure. I think my dad, again, being very conservative down there, he was actually way more into like the acid rock music. Hmm. But he himself, I mean, now he's kind of conservative. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if what is it? There's a saying that if you're um, under 35 and you're not a Democrat, then you have no heart. If you're over 35 and you're not a Republican, then you're you have no brain. <laughs> <laughs> We are by no means taking a political stance here. No, this, this is, is a just, saying that exists. It's in just the ether. a saying that exists. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny though. Yeah. Well, okay. So obviously, this this event that is the '60s, this mm-hmm. decade that is transformational. There was a lot of things that were going on that were defining in this. There was a civil rights movement, obviously. There was uh, the women's fight for equality that was mm-hmm. now moving away from basic liberties and voting, and now moving into the workplace right. and. Uh, establishing itself in education and, and what have you. And then you also had, uh, obviously, the world's desire to to move on technologically and complete amazing feats like the moon landing, for yeah. example. So we can't forget that just a few short months or just a little over a month before Woodstock, a uh, man first landed on the moon. Right. So there was a lot There going was a on. lot. And, and the Vietnam War, obviously. Yeah, well, and that's the, the Vietnam War is kind of the crux of it, if you look at it. Um, don't also forget, in 1969, before Woodstock, um, and shortly before Woodstock, was the Stonewall Riots. Sure. You also um, have the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything yeah. going on with the... Uh, the uh, the fight against communism, right? So, and that's that's really what we're what we're boiling down to is because the the movement and what the the culture was trying to represent and the target audience of Woodstock were the people who were very focused on anti-establishment. And it was, we don't want to be constrained by um, what our parents were constrained by. And also, let's look at it this way. They're reacting to the draft mm-hmm. for Vietnam for a war that a lot of people did not think that we should be a part of. Even by definition, it was a police act or something like that. And Police act is a PC term for a war. Yeah. A war yeah. that we do not want to call or declare a war in Congress. Right. And we were getting our butts kicked and there were people again being drafted at the time voting age was 21 drinking age was 21 draft age 18 yeah so you had a lot of students younger people whose voices could not be heard by voting principles like that just voting law it could not happen and so that caused a lot of people just to to voice out and want to just kind of and scream at the adults, the establishment, and say, no, no, 
you can't do that to us. You're not being affected by this. We're being affected by yeah. this. And, and um, of course, don't forget that the origin of this group very strongly tied into the hipster movement. Yeah. So in the 1940s and 1950s, you had a lot of middle class white Americans who were trying to branch out culturally and move into areas that were not predominantly white mm-hmm. and experience the culture, the music, the sound, the experience that they could find in those places. And what they ended up doing was creating a, a system of tolerance and a system of understanding that the hippies, quote unquote, the hippies, derived from the word hipster, took to a whole different level and, and evolved that meaning and evolved that message. And not skipping over the beats. The beat, right. beatnik culture sure. directly fed into this, especially in the levels of drug use, yeah, etc. Well, the hipsters and the beatniks kind of came together and what you had They were, were the same. They were pretty much the same. It's fascinating if you watch it because they actually end up colliding. Yeah. There's a video of this. Right, you can absolutely. See a, a hipster. And the, a so a guy beatnik. in a zoot suit yeah. and then a guy in a black turtleneck. That's right. And they and just they, combine. They combine and then they explode in rainbow color. <laughs> uh, and what you have is a guy who's wearing jeans, no shirt. Uh, very long hair there you go. and uh, no shoes, <laughs> but amazing calluses that were highly protective. Fantastic! It, it was—it's a beautiful scene. You can find it on <laughs> and YouTube. And a fantastic probably. beard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so but we're but we are talking about a very very specific movement, and for a certain level of perspective, um, you know, we tend to glorify a lot of the the free love counterculture um, hippie movement now looking back on it because we see these are people with a lot of cause people who believed in something and were trying to have their voices heard they're protesting whatever there's also a darker underside to that as well um part of the reason why my mom moved out of san francisco or her family moved her out was because she was living in haight ashbury yeah which is like if san francisco was the mecca this was the focal point (laughs) yeah um and so she was living in in the area i mean there's still tons of hippies there day like today sure absolutely Um, the hate is it's yeah it it will that that aspect of that culture will never die right and so on one hand you know being a kid she's like oh wow well this is it's all very pretty and um you know all these people are very colorful and and so on that regard it's attractive it's, it's great but at the same time they're doing drugs and being naked in the park and sleeping in the park and um going into stores and stealing and raiding and uh taking over these you know victorian houses and this will make you cry eric taking these um taking over these you know hundred year old victorian houses tearing them up. doing a lot of drugs and setting a bonfire on the second floor and watching the whole place burn down yeah because they weren't necessarily having a, a social responsibility yeah so that's it's a little tough because you know just like any sort of mass gathering there's going to be people who are very well intentioned and then there's going to be the people who kind of wreck it you sure. know and it's not to say that every hippie out there fit this, not at this all. mold not at all they weren't all out there doing drugs mm-hmm. and having unprotected sex with multiple partners there were a lot of people who were very i wouldn't say straight laced but they were definitely on a much less destructive path yeah they were there because they really wanted to protest it those was, things that they felt yeah. very strongly it was about, about. the ideals for yeah. them yeah. it was that, that sense of community mm-hmm. right so these communes that were forming and coming together most of them were actually very pure, very great ideas. You know, there was excellent idea to bring people together and teach them some values and teach them to respect the land and mm-hmm. learn how to live off of that. 
Uh, and many people would leave the commune and be totally okay and go back to their lives with a different appreciation for the world that they lived in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were some that turned into drug havens, yeah. which is totally different. This is not not to be confused, right? So there were definitely two, like you said, two different aspects of it, kind of a nasty underbelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're going to have that in everything. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can't separate that. Yes. But you can invite them all to a place. <laughs> you can. And, and and take advantage of them and try to make as much money off them as possible. And that should be in upstate New York. <laughs> yep. I, I have to say, I find it mind-blowing because I look at Woodstock mm-hmm. and I see it as a phenomena mm-hmm. that is wrapped in hypocrisy <laughs> and peppered with irony. Yeah. But has evolved and elevated itself beyond that and becomes something wholly different that the that the organizers never intended to be exactly in, in many ways it became very vindicating to the ideals and what these this culture which this hippie culture was really trying to get across the yeah. message that they were trying to spread so i i find that that just blows my mind yeah it, there is a lot of hypocrisy in the in the organization like you were saying and the legend of it and what i think the People, the people who attended turned it into was something kind of different. Right. So um, let's so let's talk about it. Let's yeah. get let's just dig right in, or, or lest we waste any more time. <laughs> and, well, I think we it, well it's important to set the stage. It is important to set the stage. <laughs> get what I did there? Ha 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 ha! Yes, but that's what you expect from me. Okay, so March 1968, uh, we have John Roberts, mm-hmm. who is the heir to a very large chain of drugstores and therefore the heir to a very large sum of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Joel uh, Rosenman ended up placing an ad in uh, the most non-hippie place you could possibly put it. Two Cheap. places, actually. That's mm-hmm. right. The Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Yep. Uh, and the, this is the exact uh, advertisement that they put out. Young men with unlimited capital looking for interesting, legitimate investment opportunities and business propositions. Yeah. (laughs) If you were a hippie in the 1960s, you were using this as toilet paper. Right. Yeah. Nobody, nobody's (laughs) saying that. And you were doing it intentionally. Right. This is not to be read by you or your eyes. This is, no. So the people who were seeing this, obviously, were in no way or shape connected to to the hippie movement not exactly yeah uh but you did end up eventually having two people responding to the ad uh and this was Artie Kornfeld mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Lang yeah so Artie is actually kind of interesting because he was a concert pr- promoter so he was definitely experienced within the hippie culture I don't know if you would exactly call him a hippie but he was definitely experienced in in organizing and setting up music festivals mm-hmm. and, and being a part of that uh and then you had Michael Lang who was interested more or less in just starting a music studio. Yeah. That's what he wanted to do. But he was looking to where would a music studio in the United States in the 60s be most accepted and become most iconic, right? You think about like Nashville and you think of country music and you think of many of the iconic figures from country who either kind of set up their their homes or set up their their future careers in Nashville or actually came from there. So he was looking to Woodstock in upstate New York because of Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. uh, because of the band. Um, and I believe, gosh, there was somebody else who was in that area as well who was living there that kind of made it iconic of the of the music of the time. But I, I, don't, I don't remember who it was. I don't think it was Woody Guthrie. No, that doesn't sound right. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I have it somewhere in my notes here. I'm sure I'll find it eventually. But Bob Dylan is really all you needed. Yeah, well, yeah Bob Dylan was huge. 
So that that was the original pitch. Yeah. Right. So that's what came forward. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing, thinking, well, is this really what, the way that we want to go with it? And ultimately, they decided that they couldn't make that much money off of it. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make bucks. Yeah. They wanted to take already their wonderful, affluent lives and make it even more rich. So they, uh, they thought, well, okay, music, people like music. There's lots of people who really like the music of the time right now. Let's try to uh, take advantage of them. And uh, that's exactly what they did. They came up with this idea for a music festival. Obviously, you know, Archie had some big contribution into this idea because he'd already been helping to organize those. And there were some other examples kind of leading up to this that kind of made it obvious that there was money in this, right? Right. The The Monterey Pop Fest in 1967 was kind of, sorry, Monterey Pop Festival. I shortened it because of my notes. <laughs> but uh, in 1967 was held in Monterey, California, and was basically what the template was for Woodstock, most notably. Um, there's kind of three major outdoor music festivals of the time that really mark the era, and Monterey Pop Festival's the first, Woodstock's the second. We'll talk about the third later. But this one's really memori- uh, remembered because it's the first major American appearance by Jimi Hendrix. So this is what actually brought him to the American eye. The Who and Ravi Shankar, which, you know, they they were already big at the time. I believe you mean the Ha'u. <laughs> Shut up, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this was also the first large-scale performance by Janis Joplin, and it was the introduction of Otis Redding into a white audience, basically. The white people hadn't heard of Otis Redding yet until this time. So pretty big as to what that festival did and that's why it was a really good um you know marker for that that festival um ranged from about 50,000 to 90,000 people throughout the whole 3-day span wow that it was and they the facility itself had normal capacity for 7,000 so <laughs> so they that's, were yeah, yeah. so that's Yikes. a lot that but that was over kind of like the entire um fairgrounds so uh they were able to cram a lot of people in there and and have a really rockin' show. So that was kind of their their motivation for um, getting something else going like that. Um, so they tried to have a they tried to hold hold it originally in Wallkill, New York, which is what a great I name. know, <laughs> which again is nowhere near Woodstock. Because Woodstock, yeah. where, they, where they were thinking of doing the recording studio, and where they mm-hmm. actually gave the name of their company Woodstock Ventures to, yeah. just had nothing near to what they needed to actually be able to do this. Uh, and so I believe it's something like um, 40 miles away, 40 or 50 43 miles away? 43 miles is Bethel, New York, where, where, where Woodstock ended up being. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how far away is uh, Wallkill? I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, regardless, <laughs> it's no, it's not near Woodstock. It's it's a good you know yeah. good drive away from there. Yeah, and they were basically they were telling everybody, oh no no, this we're going to shoot for this to be about fifty thousand people at this festival, but they were already trying to sell tickets, and they were up to yeah. the number of a hundred and fifty thousand at that point. Oh. Yeah. So blatantly they, lying just so they can get their, their hands in there. And when it became clear to the people of Wallkill that they were not going to be able to properly service the amount of people that they were looking at, just again, lowballing at fifty thousand, they basically legally banned Woodstock from happening there. So they were searching around the nearby areas, nearby cities. Um, They wound up in Bethel, 
And I think they were trying to convince somebody else and they were saying no. Somebody else was saying eh. And then a man named Max Yasger offered up his 600-acre dairy farm. Yasger he did. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) What else were you expecting from me? I know, I know. (laughs) <laughs> and so it's my nature right right and this was just a few <laughs> short months before it was actually going to happen so they basically had a month and a half oh, to the, arrange the whole thing everything up to the last oh, so possible last minute. minute and you think about all the permits that you have to get and you think about everything that you have to do in terms of zoning and all mm-hmm. of that to make something like this happen yeah i mean let's not underestimate the the feat that this actually took to get it done right because even though their intentions may not have been very pure uh they were the fact that they got anything done to the scale that they did is actually pretty impressive. Yeah. I think it's hilarious, though, that the people of Wallkill, the way that they ended up killing this, mm-hmm. was to complain about their fears of inadequate toilet facilities. Yes. Um, that they, they thought that the porta potties were not going to be a good solution. And it's. How right they how were. How right they were. I know, right? <laughs> how, how, how foretelling this was. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Max Yasgar says, yes, let's go ahead and do this. They're still also lowballing him. Again, saying $150,000. Um, but at that point, they were. So that's how many tickets they were expecting to sell, but they were still running ads nas- nationally, nationwide, saying um, then they were kind of expecting $250,000. Mm-hmm. It ended up being double that. And it would have been more if people had actually been able to get on the highway to actually get there. Yeah. There's estimates that say that nearly 500,000 additional people had been deterred or turned away. Yeah. So there could have been as many as a million people. And you think about the 1960s, what situations were going on when there were thousands upon thousands of people all crammed together? The only other thing was the civil rights movement. Right. Were these marches on Washington that were being led by individuals like, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Who, oh my God, how do we even say that? Um, he was assassinated not too long before, or not too much yeah, before Yeah, just the this. year before, yeah. 1968. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, in just, what, seven months before Woodstock, I believe. Mm-hmm. I believe it was in December of 68 he was killed. Yeah, I mean, this, this was the only other time you had people coming together like this was during right. these movements that were highly tense. Mm-hmm. They had National Guard there to protect them. There were situations that got very dangerous, uh, and some people even lost their lives. Whereas with this, you actually had people all coming together, and even though everything was against them, they still managed to, to come out okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and the idea was to come together and have a party yeah. <laughs> just have a three-day long party they called it an aquarian exposition three days of peace and music um wow. aquarian referencing the age of aquarius which oh God, was a huge theme for uh <laughs> the age of aquarius whatever we're i'm not, sorry we i just, know no i know you think it's silly no. but it well, was it was we haven't lived in any other age <laughs> i know <laughs> no one else has ever said that except for this age of aquarius they, we're, we're in a different age right now no one's saying anything about it that's okay just, just saying just go with it i'm sorry I'm, <laughs> just I'm a go with bitter. it <laughs> but yeah so there were but there were a lot of difficulties being in this area so gas stations were running out of gas as people were coming in highways were being shut down they were out of food before the thing actually even started yeah the catering that they had they the had planned for 50,000 yeah. people that was it mm-hmm. before it even started there were close to 25 to 30,000 people who had actually just set up camp yeah and you know keep in mind they had totally intended this to be a money making cash cow 
Yeah. N- ironic that they put it on a dairy farm. But yes, this this was supposed to produce uh, per person anywhere between 18 and $24, which at the time, if you were to put it into $2013, that's $112 to $150 per ticket. Which is about the same price that you would pay for outside land, outside lands or Coachella. Yeah. So, but that, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, you're going to make a ton of money off of yeah. that. And that's exactly what they had hoped to do. But because they had to change the venue, because they ran into all these different planning problems, mm-hmm. because they couldn't get everything together in time, the rather key and important fences and ticket booths were not completed in time. Well, they were just... And whatever fencing they did have just got pushed over as people climbed over it to get in. Yeah. So. I mean, you, you can't stop that many people. Nope. When you have probably three security guards who spend most of their time sitting mm-hmm. and... 30,000 hippies. They're just, sorry, not going to happen. You're you're screwed. (laughs) Yeah. But remarkably peaceful, and a lot of that has to do with um, the security situation that they did use, um, which was pretty much thanks to Wavy Gravy and the the Hug Farm commune, (laughs) which is so funny to say. If if we ever go huge... (laughs) <laughs> Nerdonomy, that is. Right. You know, astronomical. Mm-hmm. And we end up having, you know, a large builder or something like that. I would love for either them or their descendants to be our security force. Right. There you go. There I you think go. That would be very fitting. Well, so what did they do? They they used what they called please force, which means <laughs> um, as people were. It's almost as bad a pun as what I would make. I know. As people were, were doing things that they didn't want them to do, they'd be like, hey, can you please stop doing this and please do this instead? And for people who were, um, you know, starting to put up a fight or whatever, there were people dressed as bears using custard pies as like, uh, you know, smashing them in the face with custard pies and trying to. Use that. The were basically, there actually custard pies? Because think, from what I hear, there was no food. I don't think there were any custard yeah, pies. Yeah, because there were custard but, pies. They were being eaten. But basic. But Wavy Gravy was joking about that because his whole thing was um, he was a clown persona. He's just kind of a, an entertainer. Mm-hmm. And uh, on top of being one of the the four major MCs, and actually he's been at all of the Woodstocks since. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but he. <laughs> He basically was like telling the media, "Yeah, we're just going to use custard pies to deter people instead of violence." <laughs> and like, but that was his whole thing. So squirt bottles and, and custard pies. But yeah, so I, there was a, but there was a lot of stuff when the actual concert got going. There ended up being a lot of pitfalls. Uh, on top of not having any food, um, people in the local area were not necessarily, you know, being harassed. Depends on how you want to look at it. But they were trapped. They were trapped. They were stuck in there. Their cars, there, there were cars coming in and parking on their land, tearing their land up. Yeah. But not only that, the highways. Oh yeah, no, the highways were parking were lots for quite literally yeah. twenty miles. Yeah. Which is insane. Most of the performers had to be helicoptered in. And so by they who? Could... You know? <laughs> oh. This is where irony gets peppered in. Oh, but no, no, no. The U.S. Army did not come in until they were looking for medical supplies. That was when they were, they shipped them in. But the U.S. Air Force was providing the, the providing band's the, okay. uh, assistance via helicopter. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually, so they were saying that. To, uh, I was watching the documentary, uh-huh. um, which I can talk about the documentary afterwards. But uh, they were, it was, again, the kind of the split view. There were people who were like saying, oh, yeah, they're calling them pigs and all this other stuff. But we're trying to stop them from doing that. They're just yeah. helping out. So um, there was kind of like this again the dichotomy of of the you know the politics and what we're really trying to stand for here. And you know don't 
don't shoot the messenger type thing. While we're in there for just a moment. Okay. Brief tangent. Again, irony. The whole festival itself could very easily have fallen apart before it even started if they had not signed on Creedence Clearwater uh, yeah. initially back in April of, uh, I think it was 69. So yeah, just they a were few the first before. band to be signed. And they signed them uh, for, I believe it's about $10,000. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not a lot of money in our day and age. That, that's a decent chunk of change back then. And uh, it was not something that was really, they were hoping to kind of offer. This is not like a lowball offer. This is what Creedence Clearwater wanted. Mm-hmm. And not only them, but individuals like Janis Joplin, mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix, yeah. and even the Grateful Dead would not step foot on the stage until they had gotten paid. Yeah. Before the event had even started. In many cases, several weeks before the event had even started. And this is where it comes down to, again, the absolute irony. Here's this time. Here's this age. Here are these people who are speaking the anthems for their generation, for this movement, which is anti-materialism. And it's they and, but are demanding at, their money. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. They were not necessarily very much anti-materialistic. They were anti-establishment. There's a, there were a lot of people, yes, who were anti-material goods, but let's not confuse the two. I know, but I, I'm just saying <laughs> that it, it is very ironic yeah. that well, here's their, their icons, who maybe they see in a different light than the actual people are portraying right. themselves. Yeah. But it's I understand. just... No, I understand. I do. But not only that. I'm trying to defend my idols here. <laughs> no, I hear you. And I'm not saying they're bad people. <laughs> I know. By any way, shape, or form. Well, some I of them think, were, but well, that's okay. <laughs> some of them were, but that's okay. They had great songs. Uh, we forgive that. At what point, though, do you come out on stage, and you know you're high, mm-hmm. because you're high, and you look out on this crowd of 500,000 starving people, you yourself having the munchies, and probably an ample supply of, of snacks in the back, not necessarily. Well, I'm sorry. They I, were better I, off, but... I look at Jerry Garcia and... <laughs> oh, my the, gosh. The, this guy... Oh, hush. He had something stuffed in his oh, pockets there. Hush. He had a couple Snicker bars yeah, hanging on, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, At what point do you not say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to go for tacos for these people. <laughs> I'm going to order approximately 50,000 tacos, and I'm going to give it out. Well, you know what? They didn't exactly have to, because a lot of the neighbors, the ones who were trapped, were feeding... Like a local Jewish community center, yes. which produced, uh, what was it, a couple hundred loaves of bread and 40 mm-hmm. pounds of meat yeah. <laughs> and made them all sandwiches? Yeah. No, they were they were feeding them. And, and in the documentary, they t- there were like people who were just like, well, I'm not going to turn away a hungry kid. Yeah. They're, they're here having fun. They're actually having a peaceful event. They're actually not. Co- I mean, yes. Okay. So there was a lot of property damage of fields and stuff, but it's not like these kids were like going and causing specific trouble yeah, or targeting they people. They weren't intentionally causing vandalism. No, 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 no not at all. And so they're I, kind of, yeah. I'm just saying, if you're Jerry Garcia, you know, sure. hand out a Snicker sure, bar Sure, sure, sure. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, there was severe weather. Yeah. Absolutely severe weather. Um, so they're set up, and, and I'll just kind of talk to this a little bit because... I had to, so I just find it really interesting. So I, I don't think some of your listeners know, the Nerds on Film listeners, I think, know. Um, I spent six years working as a concert technician um, doing lighting and sound. Um, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty details of all that other stuff, but I just got to say, watching the footage of them setting up just kind of makes me really think that there was no such thing as OSHA standards at the time <laughs> because, like, watching a guy pretty much ride 
a follow spotlight up as they're lifting it by a crane and he's like barefoot in jeans and no shirt and i'm just like where's your safety shoes and why aren't you clipped into something (laughs) it's like frightening for me um well, the health and safety of these people. Oh were God, no! Pretty it's much totally ridiculous. From the get-go, even when it was imagined to be smaller, right? When they were only originally planning on having facilities well, to accommodate fifty thousand people, yet selling two hundred. They were tickets. also assuming that people were going to be bringing in a lot more of their own supplies, and people didn't. Yeah, but nobody brings a toilet with them. I know, I know. But and they had for every ten thousand people. Mm-hmm one toilet yeah lines for the toilet were up to an hour lines for water were up to 30 minutes i don't care if you got a group of five hundred thousand nuns yeah and put them all which in the there same were some place. nuns there eh, no doubt of that <laughs> and ask them to use those kind of toilet facilities yeah you're gonna have rosary beads flying no. because you know the, again though the fact that people actually were were civil because of it yeah. is amazing but the, it sanitary conditions were awful well yeah one Uh, of the best analogies i heard was that woodstock was essentially the aftermath of hurricane katrina mm -hmm. but with bands playing in the background right right well and so i keep referencing the documentary but there was so much good stuff in it um there was was in the moment too yeah well yeah it was happening there's footage of uh, of a guy who's actually they called him the Porto San. He was he was the the Porto San cleaner dude. He like went and pumped it and like sprayed it down and like cleaned all the stuff and and he's doing the whole thing with like a huge smile on his face and he's like a middle aged dude. And the documentary people are talking to him like you know how do you feel about this? Like you seem to be in like a what do you think? And he's like ah you know what I'm happy to do it. He's like M- one of my sons is here and is having a good time. And another one of my sons is over in Vietnam right now, flying helicopters. So, yeah, I'm happy to do it. And he just, like, doesn't even care. Because there was something about that time, and there was something about what was happening that I think people actually recognized. It was kind of remarkable. There's a lot of people who had problems. The media was was talking about it beforehand, kind of highlighting a lot of the problems. Yeah, traffic um, jams and the like. Exactly. Exactly. And then um, a lot of the media was blowing out the things about the drug counterculture and all this other stuff. But their kids were calling in from the payphones, the super long lines of payphones, and and calling their parents saying, I don't have any problem, we're all good. And the parents were calling into the media saying, lay off, our kids are safe and having a really good time. Yeah, around day two or three, uh, the media attitude completely changed. Yeah. And they were overlooking all the really scary stuff that was going on there. was a lot of scary stuff. Uh, But so were the people who were there. They were overlooking it too. They didn't seem to have a problem with it. I think if you tried to do the same thing today, you would just have a bitch fest. They tried to do the same thing a few months later, and it was an awful, yeah. awful experience. And we, again, we're going to talk people, about that a little bit later. People will be bitching on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, God, every yeah. Every five seconds. Oh, actually, it's really funny. If you go on to, um, oh, God, I want to say it's uh, the Rolling Stone website. They have uh, an article called tweeting woodstock and it was as if somebody was at was live tweeting throughout woodstock it was really funny you should you should totally check that out later i think there's actually a movie either in development or coming out soon uh or no there's a movie that came out called taking woodstock yeah i'm familiar with that there there was i think actually you know i think i'm confusing i think it's a book that's coming out that's from the perspective of janice joplin oh really it's it's fiction obviously but Mm -hmm. it's written from her perspective at woodstock interesting and it's taken from all these eyewitness accounts and all these other uh views on the actual uh festival itself but uh it's supposed to be her idea of what it's all about yeah 
so real quick back to the weather um it was extremely windy extremely rainy basically turned the whole thing into a giant mud pit they were asking people to move away from the scaffolding and the towers where they were basically ho- holding all the speakers and lighting equipment etc um because they were swaying quite a bit and asking people to stop climbing on them because you might die so <laughs> um but people were actually being pretty respectful about that they were there was a lot of people covering themselves up and everybody started chanting no rain no rain to try and like think the rain away as like the MCs were calling they were just like think it away man think it away and um there were there was like some other people who were like trying to say like oh the fascists are seeding the clouds they're trying to rain on our good time <laughs> like <laughs> it's very very funny <laughs> well were, it didn't work though no it didn't work um so they were all muddied up people are sliding around in mud pits there's garbage everywhere but people are turning the garbage into percussion instruments and having a drum circle which is pretty cool um <laughs> well i have to mention though that uh, one of the performers Alvin Lee from uh, 10 years after. Yeah. He was performing during a full-on thunderstorm. Oh, yeah. Hardcore electrical storm. Mm -hmm. And uh, people were warning him, get off the stage. You know, you could be electrocuted. Uh, To his response was, and this is quoted, oh, come on. If I get electrocuted at Woodstock, we'll sell lots of records. (laughs) Nice. Nice. So So smart. You know, they don't even care about you know the, the fear of death there let's just all get together and have a good time well There's exactly be set for that exactly um and that was a good set too it's very bluesy i dig it <laughs> <laughs> um but uh there were three deaths but none of them were really caused from overt violence i'm gonna say overt so right. there was one burst appendix there was one heroin overdose and there was one kid who was accidentally run over by a tractor oh god and the tractor just kept going okay for one if you're gonna decide did to that field over there oh man look it's all wavy and with grain mm-hmm. i'm gonna sleep in that i'm gonna be totally unseen on a known producing farm yeah I'm sorry, you kind of deserve to get run over by a tractor at that point. I mean, use your brain. Yeah, yeah. I know you're probably baked out of your mind. Well, he probably didn't expect a tractor to run through there. But anyway. it's a field. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. They're on a dairy farm. They're in the middle of the country. There's tractors all around. Fair enough. That's Um, the only way people can get to their houses is a drive through the field with a tractor because the roads are all closed off. There you go. I'm sorry. I I have no sympathy for this. I know you don't. I I shouldn't say that. I actually have a lot of sympathy. I feel really bad. But... (laughs) It sucks that he died, but he's an idiot. Thinning of the herd. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's one of the first Darwin Awards probably awarded. There you go. Um, but there were 45-plus doctors working for free. Yeah. Um, U.S. Army sent in some extra medical help. But most of what they were doing was just kind of taking care of cut-up feet. Yeah. Because um, people were losing their shoes and walking through garbage and that kind of stuff. Well, the um, ground was swallowing their yeah, shoes. Yeah. Uh, um, there were two births and yeah. four miscarriages. <laughs> ooh. Yeah. I heard that one, too. I was like, ooh. Actually, you know what's interesting, though, is uh, one of those births has never been confirmed, mm-hmm. and the other one did not take place at Woodstock. No, it but was, she went into labor. She, she was in the labor. car. Right? Uh, oh, wait. Okay. So maybe one of them was supposed to have been in the car. The only one they can confirm, though, was in the hospital. They had to oh, airlift okay. her to the yeah. hospital to give yeah. birth. But yeah, she did go into labor in right, Atwood's. Right. Um, there was a lot of skinny dipping and a lot of nudity. Well, it was right near a pond. Yeah. But the, that's just. So there was a lot of naked people. Um, so that's awesome. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I, I fully support that. Yeah. And some people, like, there was a local couple who called it a, um, a shoddy. 
mess. <laughs> but know that you need to change that vowel sound. To <laughs> um, and there was actually a local cop in the documentary who said something along the lines of, forget their hair or how they dress. Let's look on based on how they are on the inside and how they're conducting themselves. You can't question these people on being good Americans. So there was definitely kind of that That's aspect, awesome. too. Yeah. And another quote I just want to pull again from the documentary. There was a young blonde boy and he was going off on a long, long tirade. Um, but he was basically saying there are people that are nowhere that are coming here because there are people that think they're somewhere. So... Everybody is like, you know, looking for some kind of answer where there isn't one. Or else why would 300,000 people get together just because it's music? Is music all that important? Yeah. And it was like the 16-year-old kid who's like... I mean, he was probably on LSD, but that makes a lot of sense. Actually, well, I know that the girl that he was with, she was like, I don't do drugs. Oh. There's actually well, there was quite a few people on there saying no, dude, I'm totally straight right now. Yeah, like I just don't do it. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that person's baked out of their mind, but that's okay. Well, I'm straight. That's where we come back to is is not stereotyping yeah. them, which is easy to do. You kind of fall into it. Actually, I was right. just doing it a second ago, but it, you know, it, it it brings up a good point mm-hmm. that it is a miracle that something like this was able to happen. But the only reason it was able to happen was because of the people who were in attendance. Yeah, if it was any other you know, group of people at the time, it probably would not have happened. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the civil rights movements, mm-hmm. uh, how all of those people were able to get together and not by any fault of their own was there any violence. They were the ones who were keeping the peace and keeping it civil and that could have exploded into something way different. There were a few isolated instances of people who were out of control on the opposite end of that. Yeah. And that's in situations like that, obviously you got to have the National Guard. But they offered to bring National Guard in. In fact, Nelson Rockefeller wanted to send in 10,000 National Guard because they were afraid of, of what was going to happen. And they're like, you know what? We don't need it. Yeah. We're fine. We have the police force, and they're going to take care of everybody. Mm-hmm. And they did. And they, they did it in a as civil way as possible. Yep. Other cool things that happened there, um, there was definitely, like, helico- after, like, one of the rainstorms, a helicopter drove by or flew overhead and dropped flowers and dry clothes over the over the crowd. So that Which was really cool. Which promptly fell into the mud. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, no, I think a lot of people caught it. Um, a lot of playing in the mud, like we mentioned. Um, a lot of, like, guided yoga happening during the whole I thing. I heard about that. And people doing, like, this actually weird type of yoga where you're, like, basically hyperventilating in order to get high instead. And it's like, it's a clean high, guys. <laughs> but speaking of high, and I'm going to very clearly talk about two extremely notable, remembered things from it, and then we're going to talk about the music, because how can we not? First thing, though, is the very famous announcement about the bad acid. <laughs> and I actually have the quote here. And this was an announcement announcement that was made from stage, um, although they haven't been able to figure out which announcer it was. We're pretty sure it wasn't Wavy Gravy, but it could have been Muskrat, Chipmunk, or John Morris. And it's, uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I received, you may take it with however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest. But uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I just love how like vague that is. <laughs> and 
But um, my favorite parody of that is in Wayne's World 2, where Garth Algar stands on stage and he's like, there's some bad red rope licorice in the crowd. (laughs) And it's so freaking funny. Um, But the whole reason why they wanted to warn people about the brown acid, um, and they had to clarify it later, but brown acid is actually... um, acid that hasn't been processed as much so it's actually significantly more potent and so when it got around they were just like okay just take half a tab of that or else you're gonna have a bad trip like it's gonna be way too much for you um so that was that was kind of that but it's one of those like iconic moments like there's a bad acid (laughs) (laughs) another really notable part that takes me into the music aspect was the fish cheer from country joe mcdonald whoa 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 i'm gonna keep it clean this is not nerds on film (laughs) tone it down I know. No, I will not say that. Sean, get the bleep button ready. (laughs) I will not say the F word. I will be good. (laughs) But this was this was huge. This fish cheer. And then it goes into um, the song. uh, What is the fish cheer? Why is it called that? Uh, okay, so it's called the Fish Cheer because originally um, when Country Joe McDonald and the Fish Band started playing, they would say, give me an F, F, give me an I, I, give me an S, S, give me an H, H. What does that spell? Fish. What does that spell? Fish. What does that spell? Fish. I'm sorry, what does it spell? Fish. Oh. And so <laughs> eventually, <laughs> you're a jerk. <laughs> that was funny, though. Um, eventually, it turned into the F word at a concert, and that's what stuck. Oh. Um, and it became a popular icon. So people were, you know, that you just kind of expected that from Country Joe McDonald, but he was also one of the more active political singers. I mean, they all were. Um, but he had his song, I Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die. So right after he does the fish cheer, he goes into um, I Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die. And funny thing is, my dad's senior year of high school, they actually pulled a senior prank where they got uh, the valedictorian to play that over the PA during lunch period. And all the kids gathered and were middle fingers up to the air, singing along with the PA, singing the whole thing. And there were teachers coming out of their classrooms actually doing it, too. <laughs> and and people were totally all on board. Um, my I, Talking to my mom about it, too, um, she's like, oh, yeah, I remember that, too. Like, when, I, when we were kids, because when I was in junior high, people were singing that while they were walking out of the lunchroom, you know? And so... Um, so it was kind of like a it was a pretty popular anthem for a lot of kids and when you watch the the documentary or listen to any um watch it on youtube watch a clip on youtube everybody's singing it and it's really cool it's um i can sing it a little bit if you want go for it (laughs) brian's not the only one who could do musical theater right right and it's one two three what are we fighting for don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. Whoopee, we're all gonna die. Whoopee! <laughs> I know, whoopee, it's a jaunty little tune <laughs> about death and going to war. And um, But everybody's singing it. So this is, this is just one of those big, big moments where everybody comes together. The set list for Woodstock is all over the place. You don't, I'm not going to go through every single last one because it's three days worth of music. And a lot of people were playing like starting in like early afternoon. And, but these performances were going on into dawn. 
So people were playing, you know, at three in the morning. Actually, the reason why um, CCR was not included in the actual documentary. That is Credence Clearwater yeah, Revival. Sorry. <laughs> CCR. That's what we call them. If you're down, if you're hip. Basically, he had they had a 30, uh, 3.30 a.m. start time at Woodstock. And John Fogarty, who's the lead singer, again, mind you, they were the first people to sign on. But he was basically saying, we were ready to rock out. And we waited and waited. And finally, it was our turn. There were half a million people asleep. These people were out. It was sort of like a painting of a Dante scene. Just <laughs> bodies from hell, all intertwined and asleep covered with mud and this is the moment i will never forget as long as i live a quarter mile away in the darkness on the other edge of this bowl there was some guy flicking his bick and in the night i hear don't worry about it john we're with you i played the rest of the show for that guy (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's almost as good as uh what ravi sankar said Mm -hmm. when he said he actually thought it was terrifying to be up on stage while he was performing yeah Uh, and he said it reminded him of his native india and the uh, water buffalo that used to right? wallow in the mud. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, well, and they weren't the only ones who were kind of afraid. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We have to say Crosby, Stills, and Nash because Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young later played the electric set, but Young did not want to be included in the acoustic set. Um, but this was actually only their second gig as them as a as a performing group together. But that was kind of interesting, and, uh, and and to be at Woodstock, to be at wow. Woodstock. But I mean, like they were they were all artists in their own right, sure. like separately. But this was but, the first, the only the second gig for them together. That's wild, um, though. Yeah, they said that. I think it, I think they quite literally said, "We are scared shotless." <laughs> <laughs> Again, we have a bleep button. I know. Sean I'm... has a, a special Sarah bleep button. <laughs> That, that registers your your uh, your vocal patterns right. and just throws it right in automatically. <laughs> so so don't worry too much. Except instead of beep, it goes auga. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, can you please put in an awuga sound? Oh my god, that'd be so funny. So you better swear next time because I want to hear that awuga sound on the podcast. All right, <laughs> there we go. Have the auga there. <laughs> But uh, it, obviously, tons of other notable, notable performers. Uh, Janis Joplin, who, when she got there, she was actually really nervous. When she kind of did this as a, like, okay, I'll do it. It sounds like fun. She saw the amount of people and kind of like got really excited but really nervous. And then she had to wait 10 hours before she actually got to play. So she spent a good chunk of that time uh, drinking. And shooting a heroin. <gasps> no. I know. And she basically was, yeah, trying to kill time. So then when she actually went on, she was high out of her mind. Her voice broke in a lot of her more popular songs. And I think she had uh, she had some issues, actually, with her performance. She felt very self-conscious about it. So she kind of wishes that she could do that over again. Mm. Or she did at the time. Canned Heat played. And their song, Going Up the Country actually is kind of considered the unofficial theme song of Woodstock. So if you guys haven't listened to that one, please do, or if Sean's willing to cut in a little bit, that would be cool. And primary member, the one who sang Going Up Country, is a man named Alan Wilson. Hold that thought. Mention Janis Joplin, mention Alan Wilson... 
Jimi Hendrix played the last set. He was actually the highest paid rock musician at the time and the highest paid during Woodstock. So whereas everybody else was making 10,000 up to 15,000, their cap was set at 18,000. He demanded 26,000. And he had the credit to do it because of the Monterey Pop Festival a few yeah. years before. So the Star he, Spangled Banner earned him every penny. Oh my God, the Star Spangled Banner that goes into Purple Haze was like amazing, melt your face, good old fashioned rock, right? And that image of Hendrix. It's is iconic. Just, it's so iconic. Absolutely. You could be born on. The top of Kilimanjaro. Yeah, and you know and you that will image. Know that image. Yeah, although so the image of him though lighting his guitar on fire and all that stuff was from Monterey Pop Festival. That was right. not this one. His was all during the day. Yeah, and actually yeah. by that point a good chunk of people were already gone. <laughs> yeah, wasn't there only a few thousand people left? Fifteen thousand, I think. Yeah, compared um, to five hundred thousand right, the day before. Right. I would, if I were that person who left early, I'd be kicking myself that I missed Jimi Hendrix. Because about 50,000 people stayed just to see him get on stage. And after that, they're like, you know what? All right, we're out. I don't think I can do another two and a half hour set. (laughs) Well, yeah, because he had had the longest set. Um, So, funny thing, though. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Alan Wilson from Canned Heat all died the following year, all died at the age of 27. Was it all heroin? Uh, no. No. Well, I mean, technically speaking, what killed yeah. Jimi Hendrix was choking on his own vomit. Right. But he definitely had a drug overdose. And I do, I do think that, um, I'm not sure if it was heroin, but I know that Alan Wilson died of an overdose as well. Yeah. Um, it's sad. But they were all part of the 27 Club, which has also the likes of Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse now. Yeah. So that's kind of a very interesting one. The, and it was kind of, it wasn't until Kurt Cobain that the 27 Club actually got really advertised, but turns out there's a lot of famous musicians who all died at 27. Well, you know, Cobain was our uh, our experience with that. He was our guy who OD'd mm-hmm. for our generation. He was the first one who really kind of struck home for us. And yeah. I remember when that happened. It was yeah. pretty wild. I mean, the news reported it everywhere. My sister, who was five years older than me, was a bit older and a little bit more appreciative of the music. Uh, I was still pretty young, but I, I certainly was exposed to it and knew what was going on. Yeah. You know, to think of uh, to think of what you would have gone through in the 70s, though, it's, you know, every other week. Well, it's exactly. And it's a, definitely a darker side, again, of this counterculture movement and things to be aware. It Honestly, for a lot of people, Woodstock was a cautionary tale. Yeah. It's like, this was peaceful, but look at all the drugs. Yeah. So, uh, Joan Baez, who, very popular... Very huge folk singer. Um, most of the acts you were looking at were all along the lines of folk, acid rock, blues, that kind of style. Um, so Joan Baez uh, was actually six months pregnant at the time. Really? Oh, yeah. She was super pregnant. And her husband, who is a very famous anti-war activist, was in prison. And she was kind of basically giving them an update. Like wow. over, like she's like, hey, by the way, this is what's happening to him. He just got transported um, out of county to federal prison, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So that was kind of crazy. John Sebastian, who was the lead singer of the Love and Spoonful and one of the founding members, was actually there as an attendee, but was pulled up on the stage last minute to to play oh, really? because they were basically trying to kill time. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a delay, and they were killing time. Uh, Joe Cocker was there mm-hmm. he quite famously sings uh with a little help from my friends which is a beatles tune yeah but did a really amazing cover of it and it became the theme to the wonder years but if you have not ever seen a clip of him doing that oh on stage God. it was 
amazing. It's like he's having a seance. It's transformative. And watching him just like play like crazy air guitar and air bass as he's singing and they actually in the documentary it's really cool because they do him kind of playing air bass and actually paired it up right next to the footage of the guy actually playing bass and it was it was awesome it was so good it was so good (laughs) so that one's amazing um and then you have shauna na and shauna na this was actually one of their first major gigs that actually brought them into the the like the limelight they actually had just formed as a band not too long prior and their whole shtick was that they did covers of 50 songs and they were dressed like greasers and that was that was their deal they got more popular in the 70s and actually were featured in the movie grease and their dance in the gym that's that's shanana and I don't know why they're there. <laughs> maybe because they said yes, maybe because they wanted a fun break. But the way I see it, it's like me first in the Gimme Gimmies, which is one of my all-time favorite like punk ska cover bands, playing at Coachella. It just doesn't quite fit. <laughs> but it happened. Um, and then I'll kind of leave it at, at this as, as far as the acts who did perform. The Who. And the cool thing about this one was during, um, I believe it was during Pinball Wizard, there was an activist named Abby Hoffman who was, um, you know, he was, again, another popular activist at the time. He gets up and actually interrupts their performance and starts to go, like, grabs the mic and starts to go on a tirade about um, John Sinclair, who is a, you know, for, uh, founder of the White Panther Party who had been imprisoned and all this other stuff. And he just starts going on a political rant. And um, Pete Townsend basically pushed him off the stage <laughs> and was like and you're leaving now <laughs> and both both people who have different accounts of what happened some people said it was much more violent that he actually hit him on the back of the head with a guitar um but either way very very rude to interrupt a performer and pete townsend later said he's like i agree with him i don't think that john sinclair should have been imprisoned however you need to respect the sanctity of the stage and you don't interrupt a performance. Yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty big. I'm sure he was slightly blitzed. Though. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, there were there were a lot of artists who didn't appear, surprisingly. There was no Bob Dylan. Yeah. Dylan, Although, I believe his son had uh, suffered an injury shortly before that. And he had, I, I think, uh, slated to be in a different uh, performance. Isle of Wight. He yeah. was going to be at Isle of Wight Festival right, in instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But he so. had to actually return because his son was injured. So no matter what, there was no way Dylan was going to be showing yeah, up. Yeah, he wasn't going to be there. And um, the Beatles, just because, honestly, Bob Dylan Bob Dylan is one of my favorites. And the Beatles, I freaking love the Beatles, Eric. I don't think you know this about me. I love the Beatles. I, I think I'm getting that I'm now. a huge fan. I'm, I'm very intent about this. I, I love them. I can see this. <laughs> um, but th- it's still actually not quite clear as to why. Well, the from what I have read, uh, and this I don't know if this is true or not, mm-hmm. but uh, John Lennon's uh, wife, of course, Yoko Ono, she had her own band that was going on. Yep. And supposedly a couple the of different things. Ono po- band. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly there was a few things going on where, as Lennon would have agreed to it earlier, if she had been allowed to perform, they said no. So he was him hawing about it on the fence, wasn't really that interested, but thought he might come. And then he later blames the U.S. government for saying that he was not allowed uh, into the country at the time. And let's not the, forget the fact that the Beatles were on the verge of breaking up anyway. Yeah, so. yeah pretty much it is all, the, all those reasons. The Yoko Ono thing is not, that's not founded in anything. There was a period of time when John Lennon was not allowed inside the United States. Oh, really? That was legitimate. Hmm. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> because of his political activism. Yeah. That there was a time that he actually was not allowed into the states and yeah the beatles were on the verge of breaking up they they broke up not too long after it's okay Sarah. and it's actually okay. the thing is, is they hadn't even performed together live f- for since like three four years since three right? four years prior with with exception to the rooftop performance right which was which was um rare. in january yeah. that year yeah and and i don't think we mentioned this this was uh woodstock took place in august of 1969 yes. So, um, the doors probably mentioned that. I know, right? <laughs> the doors weren't there. Zeppelin wasn't there. The birds, um, the Moody Blues, even though that they were included on an original poster for when it was still going to be held in Wallkill, <laughs> but they didn't actually um, make it there. Frank Zappa, Joni Mitchell, Jethro Tull, Iron Butterfly. Some of these folks, it was just either scheduling conflicts. Uh, the fact that they weren't quite sure what this was going to become mm-hmm. and weren't really ready to commit to it and then ended up kicking themselves for ages afterwards. Most notably, the birds. They were told that it was basically going to be like whatever kind of other festival. Like they just thought it was going to be whatever, but then they ended up realizing that they missed the best festival out of all of the ones that they had been playing so far. Um, and I think it was, I think part of it was a money issue as well. I think it was uh, Tommy James and the Shondells, and they declined the invitation, and it was because their secretary had said something along the lines of, yeah, there's this pig farmer in upstate New York that wants you to play in his field. So they said <laughs> no, because I'm like, that doesn't sound like anything. And then it turned out to be Woodstock, you know? <laughs> so and that, it wasn't pig farmers. It was a dairy farm. It was a dairy farm. Get, Get it right. right, secretary. God. God. You think you are. <laughs> But, I mean, ultimately, this event went well. And it had a huge cultural impact. Absolutely. For years to come. Years still. Still. Rolling Stone listed as the top 50 greatest moments in rock and roll history ever. However, let's look at what happened in the aftermath. Uh, There's the Altamont Festival in 1969, December. And this is in um, this is the Altamont Raceway, which is in here in California. And this not one not quite the same. Not quite the same. They basically are going trying to use Monterey Pop Festival and use Woodstock as a template, but instead of hiring clowns for security and uh, a happy hippie commune, they hire the Hell's Angels out of the Oakland chapter. And during the Rolling Stones set, people died. The Hell's Angels were quite literally killing people um, and beating the auga out of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and and that, so that turned out to be a great tragedy and a complete disaster. Yeah. So kind of put a big mar on that, but those are the three big festivals to mark the time. Sure. Well, Woodstock in its essence was never really captured again. Yeah. It's spirit continued to live Mm -hmm. and still does and inspires a lot of folks but it has never really been recreated and and neither should it really be uh the field itself is now uh, a museum actually there's been a lot of passing back and forth between different owners of the field there was a lot of uh desire to return it to its origins and that was the hope that maybe it would allow it to kind of blossom and come back again but it never did uh it never really came back to that location uh, Jaeger died. Yasker? Uh, Yasker, excuse me, not Jaeger. Uh, Jaeger, Meisker. Um, <laughs> Yasker died. In 73. Yeah, so not too long, not after, too long after. And the other attempts to bring it together, uh, 
never really recaptured what Woodstock was all about. Right. Uh, real quick point, because I forgot to say this, but Max Yasger actually had a moment where he got to stand on stage and talk to everybody on his property. And he said, this is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. And I think you people have proven something to the world that half a million people get together or half a million people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. God bless you all. That is really cool. And this, he was just an older dude, like, and he basically was saying, we got to bend a little bit to this group of people. We have to let these kids express themselves. And you got to admit, not too long after, in the 70s, that's when they changed the voting age. And it did change things because there were people who did start to listen to their kids. Was it because of Woodstock? Not necessarily. Was it because of protests? Was it because of things like Kent State, which happened not too long after this? Probably. And I think that's why my mom said it was more symptomatic. Sure. Because it was something that was going to happen no matter what. And it was going to happen. It was going to happen very successfully. And people were going to remember it. But it's not necessarily a symbol because there was a lot of other stuff happening, too. Sure. But the the symptoms are oftentimes what uh, give something its name yeah you know they're oftentimes what what provided a legacy even though it was going to happen no matter what this is what allowed it to be a catalyst uh for for the meaning of what it really i think it i think it opened people's eyes to what was the change that was happening yeah so absolutely kind of like you know when you have a when you have a cough or scratch in your throat and then you're like oh no i think i might actually be sick What's, they saw Woodstock happen and said, oh, wait, I think there might actually be some change happening. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> nice analogy, too. Thanks. Big fan of those. <laughs> so different than the last Woodstock. Woodstock 99? Oh, God. Where it was like a mud party. like, but I mean, it was still a mud party, but they were actually like throwing it back and forth. Or was that Woodstock 94? I think it was 94. 99 90... was the, the Woodstock of fire and oh, bonfires. God. Oh, that's right. And audio uh, equipment's getting set on fire yeah so so very different apparently during uh fred durst's of the limp biscuit oh jeez louise Ugh, i can't believe you had to see limp biscuit i'm sorry i just got nauseous i know but it's did it's, it all for the nookie the what i'm sorry <laughs> what the hell is, no never mind. we're not getting into a philosophical discussion on nookie uh we're, you don't know what nookie is well okay i know but okay what, how does it relate to cookies i don't i just don't understand okay anyway moving <laughs> when fred durst got up on stage uh, mosh pits exploded yeah one thing the 60s did not have thankfully mosh pits mosh pits bad idea uh, ba, 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 ba. as a huge aficionado of a good punk show there are respectful mosh pits and there are bad mosh pits. okay this was a bad mosh okay pit. there you go people were getting hurt yeah people were getting sexually assaulted yes people were getting beaten to bloody pulps mm-hmm. people were dying people are getting trampled yeah and this does not represent the no. spirit of what Woodstock was all about. The fact that the name Woodstock was even attached to this ended up being a travesty. Well, and the biggest problem with that is because these are not people who are rallying behind an idea. Right. That's the problem. What they heard was, burn it down. Yeah. They heard a lyric, and they said, hey, we got candles. We're supposed to use these for a visual that we're going to be doing later. Nah, let's light all these plastic bottles on fire. Yeah. There's no, there's no dream. Yeah. There's no ideal. 
there's no drive behind that. That's just senseless violence. Well, you also have to look at how the the movement, the counterculture hippie movement evolved. Um, a lot of people grew up and moved on and became yuppies in the 80s. And a lot of people got really disenfranchised with the fact that you know they that the that that movement didn't last and it didn't work for them and that's where you get the Gen Xers and you get a lot of people who are really disenfranchised with that. The '80s saw a little resurgence of people trying to bring back the counterculture movement. Didn't quite work. I mean, for everybody else who didn't become yuppies, they went to Studio Fifty Four and did a bunch of quaaludes. Yeah, and they have their own story and involved a lot of disco. also a lot of drugs also a lot of drugs but then you have the you have the gen xers and stuff like that and that's where you know woodstock 94 and 99 come in although 99 is again aftermath at least the gen xers still sort of had a thing to rally behind 99 was more gen y yeah as in why did they even exist (laughs) i wouldn't go that far (laughs) i would say though that at least 94 Ecstasy was still a really popular drug, so people were probably really happy there, at mm. least, while they were throwing. That was the one that was had a huge mud fight between yeah. Green Day and everybody out there. But it, but it was having fun, and it was in a certain spirit of of the idea. And I think that it was, was much more successful. And it was grunge. Yeah. That was the grunge movement, for sure. I, I don't... 99 was Limp Bizkit and Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears. I mean, I know Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears didn't play, but I'm just saying, like, that's what was happening during that time. Yeah. What what was there to rally behind? We were... But any situation The, the dot-com bubble was just about to burst. I don't really... Any situation where the, where the Red Hot Chili Peppers can be anything but fun... It's not cool. Yeah. If you if you got the chili peppers up on stage, you should just be having an awesome time. There's no reason you need to set bonfires for that. No, no. Just None. appreciate their tube socks. Yes. Which are awesome, by the way. Huge supporter of those. Except for the ones that have the toes built in. Those freak me out. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't deal Ew. with that. No. Toe socks? Unacceptable. No, that's not okay. And those shoes, the running shoes that have the toes? Oh, the bare feet shoes? <gasps> those are weird. I don't like them. <laughs> You seem awfully unsettled. I really don't like do you, them. Do you not like toes? I have no problem with toes. Toes are fine. They just shouldn't I have be exposed. Problems with things that are pretending to be toes. Oh, don't like that. <laughs> God, you I all learned a little bit I about can, Eric Brickmont just now. I can see the outline of your toes. We're in the church elders. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that kind of wraps it up. Yeah, uh, as much as we can. I'm honestly, I could talk for days and days. Uh, yeah. Fun fact: Jimi Hendrix, actually a one-hit wonder. Fun fact about that. Tell me that I couldn't really believe it, but it made sense when you. Yeah, he it to did me. not have. He only had one uh, major top forty hit in the United States, and that wasn't even his own song. It was all along the Watchtower, which was done by Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, yeah. You learned something today, guys. We did. Well, your your wealth of knowledge on the time period is awe-inspiring. Uh, thank you so obsessed. much for co-hosting with me today. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you you always do a phenomenal job, but uh, tonight uh, tonight you really showed your tie-dye. <laughs> well, that's because I'm wearing a tie-dye shirt. That's true. <laughs> no, uh, I actually, thank you very much for, for letting me be here and, and doing this topic. I, I spent a lot of time as a kid being very fascinated with the 60s, the way that you were fascinated with Egypt. And I wrote several reports in high school, did presentations on the 60s at every opportunity. I actually wrote a comparative essay comparing Bob Dylan's The Times They Are Changing to Don McLean's American Pie, because that's how big of a nerd I am. (laughs) And I support that wholeheartedly. (laughs) 
listeners, if you would like to see a picture of Sarah's tie-dye shirt, all you need to do is go over to our Twitter, that is at Nerdonomy, and you can find me also on the Twitverse, at the Brickmont. And you can find me at SarahAsh16. And while you're at it, why not head over to our website, have a look around. We have an amazing blog, who Sarah's our amazing editor of. And uh, I like also... that you keep saying amazing when I'm involved. I like that. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> uh, you can also click on our amazing donate button. Who, in honor of Sarah, we have named Sarah. What? So click on Sarah and give us a donation. You na- Why? I'm the person who asks for money the least out of all of you guys on the podcast. Yes. Again, this whole show has been full of irony. Here it is again. Uh, listeners, thank you very much for joining us. Brian will be back next week and uh we actually have a special announcement next month that being october we'll be doing our very first month-long theme so we're going to be touching on some iconic halloween themes that uh, we discovered in last year's halloween episode deserved each of their own topics so this is pretty wild we're going to have the uh salem witch trials and witches coming up uh vampires monsters and ghosts uh you'll be treated to (laughs) treated to or tricked into or trick-or-treated into don't know where i'm going with this i'm just gonna let you keep going down this rabbit hole uh (laughs) you're gonna be uh given these fantastic episodes coming up in october so look forward to that we'll be back uh next week i might try to push my way onto one of those (laughs) Uh, i think that might be arranged we're definitely having you on for arthurian legends that's gonna be sometime in november yeah that needs to happen yes uh brian and i have already talked about that so uh we're gonna have a, a lovely little trio for that episode it's gonna be fantastic uh brian will be merlin uh you will be king arthur interestingly enough and i am gonna be guinevere Really? I thought I'd try something different. All right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like where this is going. <laughs> so in the spirit of Mr. Brian Moriarty, who can't be here tonight, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, to close out the show, we have, of course, Sarah Ashley in the honor of Brian Moriarty. Join us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Stay nerdy, folks. Bye. Bye-bye. Just, what are you doing? Air guitar. Okay. Jimi Hendrix? No? Oh, fine.